Lord Jesus, it's a hard word to be told that we must join you in suffering, that we cannot wear the crown without bearing your cross. This morning, our hearts will be tempted to fail. It will be easy for us to let our anxieties run, and yet we need your word. We need it to get into our heart, to change us, to build within us the resolve that if they hated you, then they will hate those who stand with you. Do that work in us this morning. Help us to be your faithful disciples. In your mighty name, amen. Job listings are an underrated, in terms of difficulty, part of life. Uh, you see them anytime you go to a storefront and there's a now hiring sign, very simple version of a, a job listing. Uh, Precious was a part of a, um, an organization that messed up even at the simple part of it. It was a movie theater, and they were advertising they needed help. And so up on the sign, it said, now hiring. And then the next line just said, penguins. Now hiring penguins. <laughs> Turns out Mark to the Penguins was there. Someone didn't put a line between them. Um, if you go down the rabbit hole on Google, job listings gone wrong, you'll find some wonderful, wonderful ones. Um, one that takes the cake in my book is for the exciting, fast-paced industry of pudding. The job listing said uh, it has long hours, lots of heavy lifting, an overbearing boss. It's a dead-end job with no hope of advancement, no benefits, but the good news is you can start immediately. If you've ever been tasked with putting together a job description or a job listing, you, you know you have a balance to strike. You both want to woo, you want people interested in the job, and you want to warn. You want to make sure that those people that actually show up know what they're signing up for. That's true in any managerial role. So it's no surprise that Jesus, who has just spent the last few chapters wooing his disciples for what to expect when he leaves them, his earthly life is over, would now turn to the task of warning them of the heavy costs they must pay, that they cannot wear the crown unless they endure the cross. Jesus has told his disciples not to lose heart. He's going to be with them by his spirit. He's going to continue to show them his life flowing through them by abundant, fruitful ministry. They're going to look forward to their home with him in heaven and the joy everlasting of eternal life. But oh, wait, there's also the road of suffering. That's what Jesus lays out for us. John 15, 18 through 25. That it's no surprise that we would be hated by the world because the world hates Jesus. To put it another way, a Christian should not be surprised that they must bear the cross if they want to share in his crown. We'll see that in three sections as we move through this passage this morning. Three aspects of this hatred toward the world that we have by association with Jesus. The first is in 18 through 21. It's that the world hates you because you're with Jesus. The world hates you because you are with Jesus. Second, we see that the world hates Jesus because of what Jesus reveals about the world. 
That's in verses 22 through 24, that the world hates Jesus because of what he reveals. And then finally, in verse 25, you see this note of sovereignty, that the world hates Jesus, and that's not a surprise. The world hates Jesus, and that's not a surprise. Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, before he was a martyr, before he was a spy and someone engaged in a plot to kill Adolf Hitler and was prepared to die for his Christian belief, before those things, he understood that the Christian job description included persecution, even suffering and death. He, he said this in a book entitled The Cost of Discipleship of Christians. He says, the world will be offended at them and so disciples will be persecuted for righteousness sake. Not recognition, but rejection is the reward they get from the world. Or put simply, there's no crown without the cross of Jesus. Let's begin in verses 18 through 21. The world hates you because you are with Jesus. Jesus begins with a note of inherited animosity. You know this concept well if you're a college football fan. Um, I'm not from here, but I've learned that apparently um, IU does not like Purdue. <laughs> and apparently the feeling's mutual. Purdue doesn't like IU, but the good news is they both hate Kentucky. <laughs> Now, whether you went to the schools and had your allegiance there beforehand or not, the second you sign up to be a student, you inherit a set, a, a set of relationships that are strained in some ways, to say the least. Jesus shows us there's a very similar dynamic going on in a much higher level between his disciples, him, and the world. In verse 18, it says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That first word in verse 18, if, carries with it the idea that the expectation is that it will happen. We might say, when the world hates you. When that happens, I want you to know something, my disciples. I want you to know that it actually hated me first. You've inherited the animosity, the hatred of your Savior. Now, whenever I use the word hate, I have to qualify that. The, the way that hate is tossed around in our culture, it's applied to anyone or anything that disagrees with you in any way. That's not the way Jesus is using hatred here. Hate is a stand-in for a deep animus, a fundamental disposition of a heart and opposition to God and all things that God reveals about himself. Jesus is telling us by simply standing with him, we will inherit the hatred that Jesus himself has, bears. Verse 19 tells us the, the place where we'll feel this, the fault line of this hatred. It's along the lines of the new humanity that Jesus is creating and his disciples. In verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In John's gospel, very often world is not talking about the bigness of all of humanity. It's talking about the badness of humanity in opposition to God. Now, Jesus is drawing here a stark line between that world and rebellion against God 
and the new humanity that he has created in his disciples, those who have been brought from darkness to light. Jesus says there's a fault line running down the middle of humanity between this new and old humanity. And it's along this line that you will feel the intense pressure to conform. Do you, do you catch that, what he said? If you were of the world, the world would love you. The very distinction between Christians and those who do not bow before the name of Christ is the very place where the pressure will be felt for the Christian to compromise, to give in to the pressure, to try and hide from the suffering that comes from standing with Jesus. Jesus tells us this association with him that brings persecution, it's a fitting sort of hatred. So he says in 20 and 21, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus has already tipped us off to the fact that we will follow his pattern in this world even with a completely different flavor to it. Back in John 13, Jesus used this exact same formula from uh, verse 20, that, that a servant is not greater than his master, in a very different setting. At this point, Jesus was showing his disciples the extent of his love by turning the power structure upside down, by the Lord becoming the servant among them. You remember he, he took off his clothes, he got down to his undershirt and put a towel around his waist, and he got down and he did servant's work, washing his dirty disciples' feet. And then he said, I have given you an, an example of the way you will love each other. And then he said almost the exact same verse, a, a servant is not greater than his master. This is an, an argument from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus, with all of his authority, all of the splendor of his glory and all the joy he deserves in this world, if he would bend down and love us so humbly. We, there's no limit to Christian love. Well, Jesus takes that same logic and now applies it not to service, but to suffering. He says, brother and sister Christian, which of you deserves a more comfortable life than the very son of God from heaven? Which of you deserves to be honored and glorified and thought well of more than the sinless son of God if they treated our savior in such a way, if we would just lift up our eyes to Calvary and see him hanging on the cross, it would be no surprise when we share in his suffering. Jesus here explains to us the pattern that Christians are to follow, that as they seek the crown that he inherited, they will have to also bear his cross. Now he makes clear that this suffering is on account of Jesus and not ours. And therefore, we are not to take this personally. Notice he said uh, in verse 20, if they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. It is your association with Jesus 
that brings this hatred from the world. Now, let's be honest about the fact that hatred comes in different flavors, as you will. That hatred toward Jesus is expressed differently in different places and different times. Uh, Certainly, it's easy enough to understand the boldest roast of flavor, the the, uh, most uh, extreme forms of persecution that believers have faced down through history and even today. Uh, If you were a believer in China or somewhere like Iran, you would know that there's a great cost to being baptized and following Jesus. You would likely lose your associations with your family members. You might lose your freedom. You might even lose your life. Thousands of Christians have drank that cup, that bold, dark cup of suffering that was handed to them by Jesus down through the ages. And yet, not all suffering and hatred from the world is expressed in the same way. I mean, there are, there's a, a light roast to suffering that we in the, here in the U.S. have grown accustomed to. I mean, when you face just a little bit of social awkwardness when someone finds out you're a Christian, maybe you're a student and suddenly you're not invited to sit with other people at the lunch table. Or, or maybe there's a family member that just distances themselves from you just a little bit because you make them a little uncomfortable with all your religion. Now recognize that the same ingredient is behind that action. That it's still hatred toward Jesus. It's just expressed in a lighter, lighter roast. Now, I think it's important to recognize that There's a a latent anxiety among many American Christians these days, and it's not entirely unfounded. We've noticed that maybe we're moving from the category of a a light roast of suffering to a medium roast, that the costs that used to be so low that they were almost negligible now are becoming more concrete and more costly. Uh, You can think of examples of court cases that make headlines these days. You can think of people that miss out on jobs, people that become the object of social media mobs. How dare you believe such and such a thing? I mean, there's even an athlete within this last month that ended up on the wrong side of this for daring to encourage kids to take their Bibles to school. I mean, that is an undoubted shift in the time and place we live. And yet, a medium roast is different than a dark roast. It's not the same thing as what believers again and again have asked to be faithful in to pay the ultimate price for Jesus. How should we be faithful in this new normal if this is what the Lord has for our country in the years ahead? I was listening to an interview from Rosaria Butterfield on the topic. She said that she thinks the Christian church needs to develop a theology of getting fired. Essentially, we need to think through on the front end how far we're willing to forbear in love and when it turns into compromising and we can go no further, even if it costs us greatly. Brothers and sisters, when this happens to us, we need to remember it's not personal. This is not the world hating us just because we're us. It's the world hating Jesus And our association with Jesus makes us the object of their hatred. I hope that helps you to not grow bitter towards those who would show you hatred, 
You can respond in love to them even. You can bless them, not curse them. You don't have to fight fire with fire. Remember, the reason you're hated is because you're with Jesus. But that leaves a really important question. Why in the world does the world hate Jesus? What is it about Jesus that the world just cannot stand? Well, that brings us to the second aspect of this hatred. The world hates Jesus because of what he reveals. You see that in verses 22 through 24. If you've been studying John's gospel with us, you may know that Jesus has already spoiled this reality. Back in chapter 3, he revealed what it is about him that is going to elicit this hatred from the world. Chapter 3, verse 19 and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, what Jesus does is he brings to light the darkness, the sin, the opposition to God of the human heart, and the world, humanity against God, hates him for it. H.A. Ironside records a story from a missionary out in the, out in the bush. Um, a tribal chieftain, who was a woman, came up to him dressed in full tribal attire with face paint on. This missionary had a mirror hanging from a tree and saw for the first time her own reflection looking into that mirror. She immediately got a horrified look on her face. She asked the missionary, why is this tree making faces at me? So the missionary tried to explain. It's, a, it's called a mirror. It's actually showing you what you look like. And, and she didn't seem to buy what he was saying. Eventually she said, I want to buy this mirror from you. He didn't want to give it to her, but she insisted until finally he relented and gave her the mirror. As soon as she got the mirror, she smashed it on the ground. And she declared, now that tree will never make a face at me like that again. Now, what that tribal chieftain was seeing in that moment was the revelation of an appearance that was already there. The mirror became the object of her hatred, but the mirror simply revealed the lack of beauty, the ugliness that she didn't even know dwelt within her. So it is with Jesus. He enrages the world because he reveals just how rotten and lost the world is. And 22 through 24, we get four ways Jesus unmasks the world, reveals the truth about the world, and therefore is hated for it. First, he reveals the world's sin by his presence. You see that in verse 22, the beginning. If I had not come and spoken to them, if I had not come, that is the presence of Jesus bodily in the world implies something. Every Christmas, we celebrate the Son of God entering into his creation on a rescue mission. The world was so lost, so sinful, that it required a, the perfect Son of God to come to do a work to rescue it. That means just by Jesus's presence, he indicts the world's sin. Second way that Jesus reveals the world's sin, also in verse 22, are his words. If I had not come and spoken to them, 
As we've been studying John's gospel, we've seen how Jesus' words don't diffuse the hatred. They actually stoke the flames and make it worse. He tells people they will die in their sins. He tells them they don't know the Father because they reject him. He makes claims about himself that anyone in their right mind would hate someone for if they were not true, like he and the Father are one. The very words of Jesus in John 6, he asks, are my words an offense to you? Are they a scandal to you? And the answer is yes. The words of Jesus, when properly heard, elicit hatred from the world. Third, his miracles. You see this in verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Jesus' ministry has been of preaching, but also of doing miracles, miracles with a message behind them. And if you hear that message, you understand those miracles, then they are even a greater offense. He fed the 5,000, showing that we are spiritually starving in need of his life given to us. He gave light, he gave sight to a blind man to show we are spiritually blind, totally helpless on our own. He, got, he uh, healed a paralytic to show that we are spiritually maimed, totally helpless without his intervention. In all of this, Jesus, his words and his actions are a scandal to the human heart. The fourth way he reveals the ugliness of the human heart is most pointed at the Jews in his day, but it's still applicable today. As he reveals their true attitude toward God, that is the heavenly father. In verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Then in verse 24, he says the same thing. They would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. To someone who was associated as the people that were the very child or son of God, who claimed a unique relationship to call God father, Jesus' most startling revelation of all is that if you hate Jesus, you actually hate the heavenly father. This is because Jesus and the father are totally on the same page. Jesus comes doing everything that the father tells him to do, to hate the works or words of Jesus or to hate the works and words of his father, who he has eternally been in loving relationship in the Trinity. All of this results in the world being more guilty of their rebellion against God than ever. Now this brings us to one of the more difficult parts about this passage is this result of the, what Jesus says about them being guilty of sin both in verses 22 and 24, it sounds as if Jesus is saying that these people were innocent until Jesus came along. Look at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. It sounds like he's saying, well, they were sinless, then I showed up and they rejected me and that's how they became sinful. Verse 24, he says the, the same thing. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin but now they've seen and hated both me and my father. 
Now, if we were to think that that's what Jesus actually said, we'd end up with a whole interpretive mess on our hands. One, it would contradict what Jesus says through his apostles in other places like Romans 1, which makes clear that all of us are without excuse before God, even just by what he's revealed about himself in nature, that God can convict any human being just by the fact that they were created and live in his world. But even more than that, it, it would be an interpretive mess with what John says in this very same book. Jesus told us that the world was already condemned before he arrived. So what do we do with this? Well, it's an easy, uh, it's actually not a difficult thing to understand, even if on the surface it seems difficult. Jesus is just saying that his arrival and ministry actually increases the guilt of those who reject him because he has revealed God in a way that no one else has before. The principle behind this is the greater the revelation from God, the greater the judgment when you reject it. Or the greater the light, the greater the condemnation when you reject that light. He says something very similar in Matthew 11. I'll read very quickly, Matthew 11, 20 through 22. He's talking about cities where he's done ministry and miracles. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He says, woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. The principle is the greater the light, the greater the judgment when you reject that light. What could be a greater rejection than seeing with your eyes the very Son of God? When witnessing his miracles before you, when hearing his very life-giving words and having your heart respond in hatred and venom. Now let's recognize this response of hatred that Jesus' revelation brings is not the only response that Jesus elicits. Even as he repels, Jesus also draws. Even as some will hate, some will find salvation. You see just a hint of this in this passage, but we can't skip it because we, we need the encouragement. Look with me at the end of verse 20. Jesus telling his disciples about the persecution they were going to have, then he says this, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You know, by and large, the world rejected Jesus. Most people who heard his words and saw his miracles had nothing to do with them and died in their sins. And yet for some, some they drank from the living water. Some they ate from the manna from heaven. Some they took those life-giving words and took them into their hearts and they were changed and they suffered and many of them died with this Jesus because they found him to be all better than all that this world can offer. They found him to be their very eternal life. Jesus lays before us a job description that he gave to his disciples that's balanced. It both has 
all the benefits that come from being a disciple of Jesus, the chapters that come before. And here, he's sober to remind us there's no crown without the cross. Brothers and sisters, shouldn't be surprised when there is suffering that comes from your association with Jesus. And you should not shrink back when you know that you're clearly talking about Jesus, revealing him to others will bring hatred on yourself. Resist the urge to dilute the gospel of Jesus and thereby dilute the cup of suffering that you might be asked to drink. I remember having a conversation with uh, a friend of mine. I had just successfully seen one of my longest tenured friends come to Christ. I was riding a spiritual high. Uh, I had all the optimism a new believer has. And I went to another of my friends. And I thought, surely I'm about to see another harvest reaped right here. And I laid out the gospel. And right from the beginning, it was as if she was just not hearing what I was saying. She kept misunderstanding, thinking I was saying that it was, I had somehow improved morally, and so I was better than her. And we went round and round and round, and finally she got it. Finally she understood I was saying it. It's not anything I did. It's what Christ did for me on the cross. And a look of revulsion came on her face, a look of horror. And she said, I could never worship a God like that. You know, in that moment, I thought I had made a big mistake. I thought I had said something wrong. But over the years, I've come to realize, I, I think I was actually faithful. I think she was responding to the real Jesus. That even as Jesus attracts and draws, that for some, he will repel. You know, right now, there are more believers than ever coming to Christ in countries where, by and large, you would say the, the country itself or the government is more revulsed by Christ. It hates Christ more than ever. Places like China and Iran, not only is there great persecution, but there is also a great harvest occurring. Realize that any time we present the gospel of Jesus... It's not up to us how people respond. It's up to us to reveal him clearly and faithfully. And whatever flavor of cup he gives us, it's for us to gladly drink it. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I wonder if you have ever had the thought, why is it Christians just seem to be so stubborn on some things? Why can't they just get over their 2,000-year-old book and all the things it says to do? I hope you understand, it's not because we think we're somehow better, that we follow a set of rules and so we're superior to you. It's because we really believe that we have found the only thing that can bring us lasting life in this world. See, the Bible tells us that our biggest problem is not having enough comfort or living a, a pleasant enough life. No, our problem is that our relationship with the God who made us is broken. That we are actually, even if unknowingly, rebels against that God. And that our very actions, our sins, stand between us and him. And we believe in Jesus, we have found the answer to that great problem. 
that this God that is just is also loving and sent his son to die in our place, that Jesus will be punished in our place so that we can now be forgiven and have a life forever with God. Friend, if, if this is true, we can't abandon this Savior just because it gets tough. Please, we're not trying to be stubborn. We're, we're trying to live as best we can, as lovingly as we can, with the truth of Jesus as the thing that we think is most important in this life. And friend, we would love nothing more than for you to join us. But please hear, should you choose to join Become a disciple of Jesus. Even though everything he offers you is free, it will cost you everything. There's no crown without picking up his cross and following him. There's one more aspect to this hatred from the world of Jesus. See in verse 25, the world hates Jesus and it's no surprise. The world hates Jesus, and it's no surprise. Even as we sang that song right before the sermon about how God is sovereign or king over us, we find comfort in the fact that he is in control. We must realize that even our suffering for association for Jesus is part of God's sovereign plan for this world. In verse 25, he says, but the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Again, this is mainly pointed at the first century Jews that were around Jesus. He says their law, as if they should have known better, if they think that they know their law so well. Then he quotes from, uh, it's either Psalm 34, uh, 35, or Psalm 69. I think it's Psalm 69 by balance of evidence. I invite you to spend some time this afternoon studying it. But in verse 4, David, who's writing this psalm, is reflecting on the fact that there's a, a bunch of people out for his crown. They're trying to take his throne for him, from him, and they're doing so without cause. He says, God, you know my heart. You know I am being hated without cause. Those are the very words Jesus takes on himself. Because Jesus is following the pattern of God's prince, the great King David is not as great as his greater son, Jesus, who comes as the true king of Israel. David's whole life is a laying out an expectation or a prediction of what Jesus' life will be like. It's a shadow of the reality that is Jesus. As David himself faced persecution from those that would rather have the sovereign kingship themselves, though Jesus too would face this unmerited hatred. This reminds us, friends, that this is the pathway of God's prince. The prince of peace will endure the very hatred of the cross, and he invites us to join him along the way. Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, don't lose heart when you see the trends nationally and the headlines that are so, so scary. Would you not forget that all of this is expected? That 2,000 years ago, Jesus warned his disciples, this is part of the job description. 
And even hundreds of years before that, a, a pattern was laid down that this is how the anointed king of God's people will be treated. There's a comfort to be found even in the midst of drinking that cup of suffering, knowing that God has not forgotten us. God is not out of control. God has not been overpowered. This is all according to his plan. Brothers and sisters, remember there is no crown without the cross of Jesus. Don't shrink back when he calls you to suffer for his name. Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood this job description of Christians well. Early on, he had that quote that I read for you, but uh, as the war unfolded and his opposition to the Nazis became more obvious, he became a target. Pretty soon it was his turn. They took him off to prison. He knew he was likely never to emerge from that prison. He put himself to ministering to the prisoners in prison with him for the months that dragged on, finding a joy in what God had for him in that bitter cup of suffering that Jesus had handed him. Finally, his day came. They came to bring him to his execution. A doctor that witnessed the event records it for us. It says Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, was kneeling on the floor praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed. So devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution again, he said a short prayer. Then he climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely in the will of God. Brothers and sisters, do not be surprised when the world hates you. The world hated Jesus. And if you are with him, you will drink the cup of suffering, whatever flavor it is he gives you. Don't lose heart. This is no surprise. It is part of God's sovereign and good plan for you to share in his cross so you can share in his crown. Let's pray.